Okay, Terry, fire us up. Here we go. May 29, 2011, lecture discussion number 37 on the book of Romans. And what I'll be doing today mostly is just adding some pieces in because I knew it was going to be Memorial Day weekend and I knew that uh, that this would be a bad time to take on something that I'd have to uh, refer to if we were missing a few people, and we are, and so it was a good idea even though the buffet has swelled the rank some. So effectively, like I said, I'm just going to throw some pieces out there today that... Um, I'll connect a few of them, but most of this will be done next week as well, and, and I, I hope that you uh, follow along as best you can. We are currently progressing through Romans chapter 3, as you know. That's where we are, and we're moving ever so slowly, as is our custom, trying not to miss or pass by the treasures that are here. There are treasures here. There are mysteries here. There's lots of stuff. Some of it is on the ground. Some of it we have to dig, but it's all placed uh, therein in, in uh, Romans chapter 3. And last week we came upon uh, Romans um, uh, 3, 19 and 20, two verses that require significant attention uh, and time before we can journey beyond those. And uh, think of Romans 3, 19 and 20 as I have people all the time draw little stop signs in Romans. One obviously is the none are righteous portion. One is uh, Romans uh, 1, 17, the just shall live by faith. And here is another stop sign that at least lets you know that if you're rushing through Romans and you got to Romans 3, 19 and 20 and you blew right through it, um, that's a that's a 25, 30 point ticket. You lose your car. Uh, you lose your right to drive through Romans, frankly. Uh, think of it as a great rock face to climb. Uh, it's indeed uh, that kind of barrier. And I, by the way, am often informed of uh, other Book of Romans Bible studies. Um, it seems to be something people want me to hear about, and they are that are meeting around the city, or that they've gone through, and and inevitably the the attendees of these studies uh, wish for me to know how long this, the lessons take that they're doing, and how many lessons uh, that their Bible study uses to get through Romans. And most of the time I ask them, do they have, did they stop at 117? Did they stop at none, no, not one, uh, uh, 3, 9 through 18? Did they stop at 3, 19 and 20? Did they run into these stop signs and spend significant time there? Uh, and um, truthfully, I really don't want to know how many lessons uh, the Roman studies that they're attending are. I don't want to know. I enjoy being ignorant. I really do. I'm serious about that. The more I learn about um, um, what's going on out there in the church, the more discouraged I actually become. And so I enjoy being ignorant. It's uh, it's really a kind of a defense mechanism now. But mostly these kind of folks, when they talk to me about this, they don't come here. And they insist, though, that uh, I know how long it's going to take their Bible study to go through the book of Romans, like I, I possess some kind of authentication credential. I have a stamp or something. And I do not. I do not have a stamp. I do not have uh, um, any authority at all. I, I don't suggest that there is some minimum time length requirement for a Roman study um, or the study of any book of the Bible for that matter. I, I don't want you to think that there is. It isn't so much how much time you spend. Is Did you get all the questions? That's really all I care about. Did you get the questions? And so I don't think you, that uh, there's some kind of length that you, where you accomplish um, something 
and it's certified as official or deemed acceptable. I, I don't, as I said, I don't have any power. That was one of my favorite lines in movies. I have no power. Uh, I won't tell you what that movie was, but uh, me and Bill enjoyed it, and we go around saying it to this day that we have no power. We can just scream and jump up and down. That's that's our superpower. I I, I have no jurisdiction. Um, on any of these kinds of things. But I will say this. I want you to know this. There are passages that are huge mountains. Whoa, the fan is blowing today. There are passages that are huge mountains to scale. And Romans 30, 19 through 31 is very high. It's one of those. So if all you do today is write in your little, uh, in your Bible that this, a little note, that this is something really cool here and very difficult to get through. It's very high, very steep, very tough. Pack a lunch. Bring, uh, more rope. Um, and my, to paraphrase the movie Jaws, you're going to need a bigger boat. That's what Romans 3:19 through 31 is. And you'll notice that this keeps happening in Romans. It happens in all the Bible. Uh, sometimes not so much in the New Testament, almost always in the Old Testament. But Romans is, it deserves, but this is going to sound awful, isn't it? Um, but I think it, uh, I don't mean it as, a, as anything other than this. Romans deserves to be in the Old Testament as well. Because it's that kind of book. It's called the Leviticus of the New Testament. And so, just imagine you're reading Leviticus. You need to go through Romans with the same kind of intensity. Anyway, because that is the case, I intend uh, to send for reinforcements. And as I said in the announcements, I have Professor Edgar Andrews. This is really for the folks on the Internet who are following along. I have uh, Professor Edgar Andrews uh, uh, ready to come and help us. Not really. You should look him up, though. He's kind of cool. An old English uh, gentleman, a, a brilliant man. And in this case, we're going to use him with regard to the ubiquity of law or the universalism of law. And we're going to use his book, Who Made God? So prepare for that next week. Those of you on the Internet and those of you who are here, I already told the ones that are here. And those of you who have copies of his book, Please bring them. Um, we're going to provide for those who do not, but uh, sharing is going to be required because we. Uh, um, this is where it's fortunate that we don't have too many, but it's also uh, we have more than we uh, we can accommodate unless you share. So uh, you're going to have to make friends with somebody, and you know who you are. You're going to have to sit next to somebody and pass it back and forth, and uh, hopefully it'll be somebody that will like you. Not necessarily during the process, but eventually. Okay, before we continue with Romans 3:19 through 31, I wanted to read uh, an email that I alluded to. I received it from uh, Jennifer in Arizona because she raised an issue uh, that is applicable to our current location here at Romans 3:19 through 31, and anything that helps me. Um, Actually, I'm using the theory that if Jennifer asks the question, if one person asks the question, there's probably another who are likewise contemplating it. And so that's what I'm doing. I'm assuming that uh, she's not in a vacuum in the sense that she's not thinking alone. And it occurs to me that uh, the rest of you know better than to ask questions. So that means I'm stuck with these people on the Internet who haven't learned that yet. And they will. So here is Jennifer... Uh, this is what it says. This message was sent to you using the contact email form on sermonaudio.com from name Jennifer. And then uh, she is uh, Jennifer Dansick, and I hope I got that correct, Jennifer. Message. 
Wow. Found Mr. Chronister's sermons through Sermon Audio and have been blown away. I struggle with walking the line of studying the deep things of God's Word and life's application. Sometimes I get too deep and forget what I'm here for, to witness and wonder how much deep study is important with that. But I love his word. I've learned so much. Thank you for putting your messages online. Blessings, Jennifer. Well, I immediately like the part Mr. Chronister, and I would like that to be passed around the congregation so that there would be more respect. Okay, there'd be some respect. Any respect. I'll take take the smallest bit of respect. I also like the word wow. I don't get a lot of wows, Jennifer, so I thank you for your very kind words. And now, Jennifer, I'm going to hand your email to Dave. And if you do not get a response, it is Dave's fault. Let me repeat. I'm handing it to Dave. Dave now has it in his hand. And he, if he does not respond and tell you about it, it is his fault. Call me later, Jennifer. I will give you his address, phone number, anything else you may want. Again, thank you, Jennifer, for your very kind words and your thoughts on the application witness balancing with seeking wisdom. Because that is something that I'm sure many people wonder about, and uh, that's why, and we happen to be in a place where that's the, uh, one of the, uh, uh, subterranean, uh, issues, so that's a very good uh, place to put you here. Now, perhaps all of you who are hearing this are comparing Jennifer's concern with balancing wisdom and uh, application and witness uh, to the universalism or the ubiquity of law, you can immediately see that, hey, this is a question. How do I balance seeking wisdom? How do I, how do I uh, balance my witness? And uh, that has a direct relationship to the ubiquity of law. I am assuming that almost all of you are thinking that. And you're now on your way uh, to uh, the appropriate connections and, and um, you're piecing that together. You're saying, good for Jennifer. Jennifer asked a question on the ubiquity of law. It occurs to me that none of you are doing that. It occurs to me that perhaps instead that everybody is anticipating the special buffet. And you're hoping against hope, aren't you, that I am going to truncate the lecture today, mercifully. You're not thinking about law, the ubiquity of law, the universalism of law, and how that applies to witness, and because it does. Can you see how it does? I keep saying it just so that you immediately start putting witness and, uh, and universalism of law together, but you're not doing that. You're really thinking buffet. Law versus buffet, maybe. But uh, knowing that, that this is not something that anyone ever connects, I'm going to continue on undaunted in my reality. Notice that Jennifer from Arizona appropriately understood something that she has, that she has a requirement upon her, as do all of us. What did she say there? What did she say? I am here for something. What is she here for? I will help you. I will write it down. She is here to be a what? 
She is here to be a witness. Now, that immediately should go, wow, wow. You and me and us, we're witnesses. We witness. We are called to be a witness. And immediately when I say that, what are the obvious questions now? Yeah, you're absolutely right. This is a legal procedure, isn't it? Witnesses are part of the legal system. So that's a legal term. Implicit in the very word witness is trial, is law, is judgment. Obviously, if you have a responsibility, if you're going to be called to be a witness at, at some kind of legal procedure, some kind of trial, we're going to participate in a court of law. God intends for that because where did we get this calling from? Who called us? Who is saying? Who summoned us? Where did you get your subpoena from? If you have to go to a court of law as a witness, the obvious question is, when is that going to happen? Uh, how does that happen? Why are we included in the trial? Why are we witnesses? What exactly do we witness of? Uh, what do we testify of? Are we testifying against somebody? If we are testifying against somebody, who are we testifying against? Are we on the side of the defense or are we on the side of the plaintiff? Or in this case, is there a prosecutor who's being prosecuted? What is the purpose of the trial? Who's on trial? What's at stake? How do we do this witnessing job that we have? Is there a description of assigned duties? Are we, are we, do I have enough weight on the paper now? It'll hang without blowing back. I do. Can we look up how to be a witness? Do we get briefed? On how to, what to say at the trial. And, and here's the, here's the key to all of this that she brought up. What if we don't, what if we don't, what if we refuse to witness? What happens then? Has anybody that you can think of immediately Refuse to witness. God has assigned them to be a witness, and they have said no. Huh? Jonah, right off the bat. And he is a type of who? Well, he is a type of Christ in his death, burial, resurrection, but he is primarily a type of... Well, us is exactly right, but he is really, first and foremost, Israel. Israel refused. They had the Torah. They had the privilege of no, of the Old Testament. They knew who God was. They were required by God to go and witness to who? To the Gentiles. Did they do it? No. How did it go for them? Not good. Obviously, if you refuse to witness, you because God's going to make you a witness. I say it all the all the time. You have two ways to witness, don't you? You can witness as a witness, or you can witness as an example of a witness that didn't witness. That's your choice. Dim's the way you can go. Whenever one considers our responsibility in this matter, one would be wise to read Ezekiel 3:16 and uh, 3:16 through 21, which is the watchman. I urge everyone to read uh, Ezekiel. 3, 16 through 21, because it is frightening. And I like frightening children and horses, if I can. It's said of me all the time. There goes 
Mr. Chronister, gosh, let's remember that. He frightens small children and horses. Yes, it's true. I do it on purpose, sometimes by accident. But last week I had a young man here, and I think he's doing a wedding this week. I think he told me, Joel, that helped very much with our music, and we're grateful to have him here last week. And hopefully we've, we fooled him enough that he'll come back. But uh, anyway, Joel went to where? Montana? North Dakota. It's almost the same as Montana. It's almost the same, sorry. And he went to officiate a wedding, right? And he asked me last week, he said, look, you just did a wedding, and I did. Uh, and once again, the only one from that wedding who has made it back to church is Robin, which make a note of that. The rest of them have, we've lost them now. But I'm uh, just only slightly kidding. Um, but he went to North Dakota to officiate a wedding, and because I mentioned that I had done a wedding last week, uh, he asked me what he should say, and I opened up his Bible and circled Ezekiel uh, 3, 16 through 21. Uh, the, the watchman, it's a witness, it's a great task, it's a solemn task. Much is required of witnesses, and so we should read it, and so we will here, Ezekiel 3, 16. So open up and go there. Now it came to pass at the end of the seven days. Now, I want you while I'm reading this to ask yourselves, how does this fit in with what's going on in Romans 3, 19 uh, through 31? Now it came to pass at the end of seven days. Oh, that's an accident. Seven days. Let me put that up there for you. What's that? That's a Passover pattern, right? Now, it came to pass at the end of seven days that the Word of the Lord came to me. Now, what if I capitalized the Word of the Lord? Who came to Him? Christ Himself came to Him, right? Because that's one of Christ's titles, the Word. In fact, it is probably the title for Him, if you will. Some might argue the angel. But you can have either the Word or the angel of God, right? Of the Lord. Son of man... I'm sorry. Now it came to pass at the end of seven days that the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. You're a watchman. Essentially, what he's to do is stand on the wall and warn them of impending military advancement. That's the watchman um, issue, but that's not what's happening here. It has a great, greater uh, significance than just that. Therefore, hear a word from my mouth. And give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked ways to save his life, that same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. What did he just say? You have a job. You're the watchman. You have to witness something. You have to warn. And if you don't warn, if you refuse to warn, there's a penalty. Yet if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn away from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his sin, but you have delivered your soul. Oh my goodness, what a wonderful word that is. Notice that God never says you have delivered your body. He never calls you a body. He calls you a what? A soul. He wants to beat that into you. You are not your body. You are your soul. 
Again, when a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die because you did not give him warning. He shall die in his sins. By the way, immediately you have to ask yourself, are we, ta- where? Are we talking about physical death or spiritual death or both? As you go through that and you see the word die, you always ask the question, is it spiritual death or physical death? He shall die in his sin, and his righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered, but his blood I will require at your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the righteous man that the righteous should not sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live because he took warning. Also, you will have delivered your soul. I think that would be good to deliver our soul. How many warnings did you count there? Probably an accident. There's all kinds of accidences and coincidences in Scripture. Yeah, there's seven days and then there's seven warnings, right? Okay, that's why, by the way, there are seven hanged. And I, Dave was talking to me about my Gibeonite lecture. Finally went over my circumcision, circumcision lecture. Finally went over a hundred people who have listened to it on Sermon Audio. And I'm so proud of those hundred people. They're my favorite. As I said, I'd like to all get together with each and every one of them. But there are, I hope that in that lecture, and I don't know if there is, there are the seven hanged. Remember the seven hanged that the Gibeonites hung because Saul killed them? Those seven hanged have a relationship to the crucifixion of Christ. They are portraying the crucifixion of Christ. That is why there are seven of them. Whenever you start seeing these seven days, seven warnings, you know that seven is one of the perfect numbers, right? Pay attention to that. You have three, seven, ten, twelve. Thank you, Miss. Okay. When, so here we are. Clearly, a watchman must warn the wicked and the righteous. So next obvious question. What's he warning them about? What is the danger? If you're a watchman... How does one warn? By what method? How do you warn people? There's obviously great danger coming. Evil is coming. And we're, 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 we're called to warn and to witness. Um, most agree that there are primarily two methods to warn, to witness. But just because most agree, it doesn't mean that most agree. May not make sense to you, but eventually you will think like me, and it will. The most who agree that there are two methods uh, take a side. They have their method, usually to the exclusion of the other method. So they agree that there's another method, but they don't like it. They like their method. So there's primarily two methods. Most agree, but they don't agree. And you'll find this kind of begrudging acceptance of other, in other theological debates as well. But anyway, we testify as we should expect in two ways. Two ways to witness. There is two ways to witness. Therefore, there are two ways to witness. There are two, whoops, can't even spell. There are two witnesses. Aha! Where am I now? I'm in Revelation 11, aren't I? 
right off the bat. Now, the, the wind keeps blowing my sermon back. Okay? She's blowing the page back, which means if I don't notice it, that we got another 30 minutes of sermon to deal with every time that happens. Okay, I will fold it underneath. Maybe what I'll do is I'll redirect the fan. Aha! Unintended consequences, huh? There goes the fan now towards you. <coughs> She'll have a combined impact of allowing me to flip the pages like I want, and it will dry the drool off the table at the same time. So that'll be it. There's two, there's two witnesses. I am in Revelation 11, aren't I? Revelation 11. Have you always wanted to know how come there's two witnesses? Why is there two? Why not seven witnesses? I could have seven. I could have three. I could have ten. I could have twelve witnesses. But he gives me two witnesses. And as soon as you see something that has a two in it, what should you immediately think? Do you want to go back to the two birds of Genesis 15 that are undivided? What should you think immediately when you see two? What's the first thing you think? Well, this must have something to do with what? Substance dualism. Absolutely right. She's abs- Yay! Absolutely right. There's two witnesses, not five, not seven, not three. And yes, I am very well aware of Deuteronomy 17, 6 through 7. Very well aware of it. Deuteronomy 17, 6 through 7 is a critical verse in the understanding of Revelation 11. It's a critical verse in understanding Zechariah 4, 14. The uh, two anointed witnesses of the tribulations, of the tribulation, I'm sorry. As you know, I have the Moses Elijah, um, Position the, the Mount of Transfiguration, the Law and the Prophets position. I have Elijah and his chariot. I have Moses' body and Michael contending with Satan view on the two witnesses. That's, that sums up my view. It'll explain why I think Moses and Elijah are the two witnesses um, because of, of uh, Michael contending with Satan and the relationship it has to Elijah's chariot among, along with the Mount of Transfiguration and other things as well. But probably uh, we should read this Deuteronomy 17 so that you understand why people will complain about two witnesses versus three witnesses. So let's go do that. Deuteronomy 17, 6 through 7. Whoever is deserving of death... Ah, now there we go. Let's just stop right there. There's a stop sign, right? Whoever is deserving of death. Okay, who's deserving of death? Yeah, we all got it coming, right? We're all deserving of death. Whoever, who's not deserving of death? See? You gotta ask that question too. If everybody is deserving of death, is there anyone not deserving of death? And then why is everyone deserving of death? Does everyone get death? No. Why not? Romans 3, right? Romans 1, 17. Whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. 
The hands of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterwards the hands of all the people. So you shall put away the evil from among you. Now, I want to repeat that. Two or three witnesses. Note that. The testimony of two or three. The evil is put away on the testimony of two or three. What does that mean? If I ask people what that means, if I read it this way, whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Is that what you think it means? Two or three. No, we got two. Oh, maybe we got three. It's two or three. It could be eight. Two or three, eight, twelve, fifteen, doesn't matter. Couple. So get rid of two or three, just put couple. A few. Some guys. Throw a woman in there just because it's politically right. No offense. It's part of the joke. You can laugh. Clearly, that it's not a throwaway line, is it? It clearly is not. If you ever think that that is some kind of two or three couple thing, doesn't really matter. It's not significant. You have blown through a stop sign, and you're down the road in the ditch again. It's certainly not. Never conclude that something like that is is some kind of arbitrary, uh, throwaway, uh, uh, inconsequential detail. There is no such thing in the Bible. It is instead something really profound. Two or three. It's a powerful truth. And it's answered in 1 John 5, 6 through 19. And the most famous of 1 John 5, 6 through 19 called the Joanine, or Johnine comma. Comma. Let me write it. I said it badly. Johnine comma. Something that you have to be aware of. I'm very well aware of all the manuscript debate. Um, let's run back there and read that one really fast. First John, right? So that you see it. I read it out of the New King James. The Old King James has it, I believe, more correct. And that shouldn't surprise anybody either. And I do know, as, as I said, I'm, that there is a great manuscript debate with regard to this portion of John. But uh, uh, let me just read uh, uh, just a little bit of it. Uh, let me start at 6. 1 John 5, 6. This is he who came by water and blood. Now, who wrote this? The Apostle John, the Holy Spirit through the Apostle John. What's the purpose? What does John always write about? He's always trying to do something for you. He's always trying to prove to you that Jesus Christ is, is Creator God in the flesh. The Word, right? So this must be some kind of... The uh, first thing you always look for is, is he proving this? This is he who came by water and blood. What's that mean? Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. What's that mean? And it is the Spirit who bears witness. There's our witness, huh? See how we got back to witness? Because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness in heaven. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. That is called the Jonanine Kama. Because many don't believe that that belongs in Scripture. In some of the older texts, it's not there. And so they question whether or not it should be included. 
obviously, I think it should be included because I see it connect to Deuteronomy 17, 6 through 7. And all of that that I just went through there was for those who want to explore the issues on their own. I'll get back to them next in the coming weeks, but if you want to go faster than me, you can now take all of that on. But back to Jennifer from Arizona. Remember her. Essentially, we testify. We give two, two ways to testify, two testimonial ways, if you will. We warn, we give warning, um, and then that would be the one way, but our, then we have our obedient godly behavior, our, our righteous behavior, our wise living, our humility. I have a note here, if I have time, and I do, to read James, because James doesn't stutter. That's why we love James. He does not like attorneys, by the way. If you're an attorney listening to me today, read James, just to give yourself an idea of what he thinks and the Holy Spirit through him. James 3.17 But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Okay? What he is saying is, is that if you have godly, righteous behavior, wise living, you will have a peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, right? That's what you will have. You will not be a hypocrite. You will not have partiality. Then Romans 13, 11 through 14, also very, very much the same. We'll get to that in a Roman study. Uh, with the preaching of the Word, relentless teaching of doctrine, the constant pursuit of wisdom, Proverbs 4, 5 through 7, also is this humility, this godly living. So I have the two of them. Proverbs 4 um, says this essentially, get wisdom, get understanding. It's a commandment. It says wisdom is the foundational or the principle or the initial. It's the primal. It's the first thing. Get wisdom. Get understanding. Why? And then live a humble, yielding, peaceable, gentle life that is not filled with hypocrisy and greed. By the way, he takes on, he takes on pastors who do it for the money. There's a lot of greed, by the way, in the church. Tremendous amount of greed. And it's always couched under the same way. God wants me to be rich. Well, you have to define things correctly. God's definition of rich and your definition of rich maybe, maybe not the same. Okay, not the same. So I have this righteous, wise, godly, humble, willing to yield characteristic. And that is a witness. And then I have this constant pursuit of wisdom that I must get. I've got to get wisdom. I have to get understanding. Wisdom is the foundational thing. And they fit together. They're two components. And that would make sense to me. Because as Mike pointed out, every time I seem to have two, I'm always in the same subject. And what subject am I in? Substance dualism. That's right. The outward manifestation. One is the outward manifestation of the inward reality. Right? I am humble. I am peaceable. I yield. I am kind. I'm gentle. And because I'm what? I'm wise. 
If I'm an idiot, I'm not going to be any of those other things. That's your idiot test. You can take it now with me. Ready? Ask yourself this. I am peaceable, humble. Let me read it again to you. Um, pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Does that describe you? Then you're an idiot. So am I. Idiots forever. Hopefully not. Now that's your test. That's my test. It's all of us our test. Those are the outward manifestation of the inward reality, the physical animation of the spiritual mind. It is substance dualism again. That's what he is talking about. It keeps happening over and over again in Scripture. How come? Because the Bible wants to make sure that you know that you are delivering your soul, that you are a soul. The obedient behavior is evidence of the spiritual commitment and thus the most obvious of the obvious questions. Why? Are we to be obedient? Why do we seek, and hopefully we do, why do we seek to live in a way that is pleasing and honoring to God? What's your motivation for doing it? Why are you doing it? I want to be a, I want to be this. By the way, if you're peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, how much money are you going to have? You're going to care about money. Hey, how about this no hypocrisy part? Who gets ahead in this world? Why do the evil prosper? It's obvious why the evil prosper. They're evil. Duh. But why should you be obedient to God? Why should we seek to live in a way that is honoring to God? Why do we care about gathering God's wisdom? When I say uh, you need to care about gathering God's wisdom, why? Why should you care? Why do we warn? Why are we a watchman? Why do we teach? Why is God's uh, system designed the way it is designed? What if we refuse to be a watchman? Let me ask you this question. If you refuse to be a watchman, what's the next obvious question? Do you believe? If you believe, will you be a watchman? Why does God have this? And that final question leads us back to last Sunday. Why does God have a belief system of salvation? I asked that last. Why does God, last week, why does God ask us to believe to be saved? Why doesn't he have an obedience-based or a, a task-based? If you drink five Diet Cokes a day for, say, let's see, how old am I? 30 years, you will be saved. How come that's not in there? It's not. If you... I don't know what other things have I done that I could count. Nothing. I know that. Nothing I do counts. 
But salvation is based on belief. Why? I asked that last week. It's not based on anything you can do. Why did he do it that way? And you may remember the answers because belief is a metaphysical, it's a supernatural, it is a spiritual reality. It is a spiritual act. It's a, meta, it's a non-physical act. That is the reason he does not want a physical act from us. He wants a non-physical act. He has inserted into us, He's Spirit, John 4.24. He has inserted into us a spiritual component, a living soul. And it's only logical, it only makes sense that salvation would be a spiritual-based event. And those who demand constantly, and they do it constantly, there's whole churches built like this, they're everywhere. Those who demand physical signs and wonders from God in order to believe Him. They're Matthew 12.38. If you're standing around going, I need a physical sign, blow that frog off that rock, and if you'll do it, Christ, I will believe in you. And if you don't do it, I won't believe in you. You are a Matthew 12:38. Read that. That's a Pharisee. That ain't good news. Those people are without any understanding. They're empty of wisdom. And notice the problem. Notice the insult. The wickedness of those who demand that God perform a physical sign, a physical wonder, before they will believe. And I always ask when I hear this, really? Really? You're going to believe if you get your physical sign. Really? Next obvious question. How long you going to believe? What you going to want next? You're going to want another physical sign. You got your physical sign. What everybody else going to want now? They all going to want their physical sign and their wonder. Would you really believe? And what would you believe exactly? Because you have to divine belief correctly. Believe what? Demons believe, as you know. What do they believe about God? What do they believe? You can join this. What? They believe he exists. They don't have any problem there. What else do they believe about him? What's that? They know that he's powerful. They know that he can take them out. What else do they believe about him? What's that? Yeah, do they believe that he wins? Maybe. Maybe they've come to that conclusion lately. I don't think they started out that way. Do they believe that he is good? Maybe. Do they think he has a solution to sin? Do they think he's merciful? See, what do they believe about God? And, and what are these people who say, the Pharisees of Matthew twelve thirty eight, give us a sign? God, Christ really, they didn't know he was God, give us a sign. We demand a sign from you. What are they actually saying to the face of God? And this is my thing, and I've said it for many years, they want God to be an organ grinder monkey. That's what they want. They grind the, the organ, and God dances. And there is churches filled to the brim with people who want God to be an organ grinder monkey. And they want it for each of us, they say. Be that monkey for me. And if you're not that monkey for me, you don't give me my sign, then what? I won't believe. I want a physical sign 
before I'll believe. And I hope you're beginning to see that is illogical. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship how? It doesn't say can or should. It says must. Must worship. What is worship? Must worship in spirit. Okay? So they must do it. They don't have an option. You don't have an option. See, when you want God to do something physically for you, are you worshiping Him in spirit? You are not. It is the opposite. You must worship in spirit. You must. And then you have to define belief. You have to define worship as God defines it. Belief as God defines it. You have to define obedience as God defines it. You have to define good works as God defines good works. What's good works to God? What's fruit to God? Well, that person's got fruit. That person's got good works. Really? Who's defining it? Do I get to be the church that defines all good works? Come to me. I will authenticate your good works. Just as I authenticate your Roman study. I am the great authenticator. And for a small fee, I will decide whether or not your works are good. And some of you need your works to be good, don't you? Because you believe in an illogical way. You have connected works and belief. You have connected a physical act with a means of Metaphysical salvation, right? You have to, again, define worship as God defines it. Define obedience as God defines it. Define good works as God defines it. Define fruit. What is fruit? Who has fruit? Who has fruit? What is it? How do you think? Let's just take a guess. God is going to define fruit. What's the first thing on his list? Hmm? Be aggressive so we can hear and then I can tell everybody and they can write me emails telling us what they think of us. Yell it out. You can do this. Huh? Love your neighbor. Define love your neighbor. Okay. Love your neighbor would mean to give him stuff. What's that? Yeah, what did I hear over here? Witness. The number one thing that God would call love, the number one thing that God would call fruit, would be to warn. Here he is telling Ezekiel, warn the wicked. Why do you warn the wicked? Why? Why do you warn them? Why do you scream at them? Because you're supposed to love them. That's how you love them. Hey, listen, if i got a next-door neighbor and every day I go over and I give him 20 bucks, buy him food, I plow his driveway... Okay, I wouldn't do that. Too much snow. But I would hire somebody to shovel his driveway. There, that's good. Uh, I paint his house. I'm really nice to him. Does God define that as love? No, he wants me to do what? He wants me to warn him. Yes. Well, I know, and, and let's see, don't get ahead of the... Okay, we're getting close. We have to hurry now. Clearly, I have to have a God-honoring life. I have to. Because why? Why do I need a God-honoring life? Why do I want one? 
Why don't I just go out and say, hey, Christ is coming, you must believe, I'm, now I'm gonna go and be a Cretan. But, I'm warning you, but, excuse me, I'm gonna go over here and steal your lawnmower, or whatever else I can steal. But, I'm warning you. Why didn't, what's the problem? You see, if I really care about that neighbor, if I have love for that neighbor, if I have fruit, then I am going to do the assignment correctly because I know what is at stake. I understand what the consequences are. See, if you don't define these things correct, worship, obedience, works, fruit, if you don't understand what they are correctly as God defines it, you, you're going to fail in all of them. To find one correctly, you're able to define the others correctly. Conversely, you define one incorrectly, you'll define them all incorrectly. And now let's see if I can get a little bit more clarity. When you are obediently going through your life and warning and obediently living your life, honoring God with humility and peace, the first, a call to others to believe. The second, a showing an outward physical testimony, animation that you do what? You believe. See, if I see, if, if you tell me you believe, but you don't show me you believe, I gotta ask, if you refuse to warn people, or if you refuse, you're just not gonna do things, I gotta ask the obvious question, don't I? What was it? Do you really believe? And what is it that you believe? Because if you really believe, then you want to be this. You want to be this watchman. You want to do this warning. And you'll do everything you can to make sure that everyone who comes in contact with you is warned. That's what I told Joel at his wedding. Stand up, read Ezekiel, tell him, everybody in this room, your blood is on my hands. If I don't warn you, I've got to warn you. See how that goes over. Don't pass up a chance, baby. You never see those people again. Every one of them will remember that you were the one that warned them at that wedding. Every one of them. Comes up at your trial. See, the most obvious question is why? What makes someone warn others? What motivates someone to care about these things? Often I'm told, I don't care what the hypocrite church people think. I get that at least once a week. I don't care what the nasty, evil, judgmental, crazy, hypocrite church people think. I don't care. Okay, fine. I'm, I'm with you on that most of the time. Do you care about what the unsaved people think? There's your question. Forget about the church people. We don't like them. <laughs> think of, they're okay. You're all okay. I'm not worried about you. I tell that when I have a wedding, most of the time, if I, I, I say, I don't care about these two people. You're wondering why I'm not telling funny stories about them. You know how I knew such and such from which is a little girl and this guy who was funny and some little clever story. I don't care. It's not my job. My job is this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to scare you to death. If I can, then I've done my job. Because I read what happens if I don't do my job. You want this job? Ooh, big trouble. By the way, do you have the job? Yeah, big trouble. Don't pass up an opportunity. I don't care either what the hypocrite church people think. I'm one of them. Have a seat next to all the others. 
The person sitting next to the person sitting next to you is a hypocrite. Okay? Figure that out later. Have a seat next to the hypocrites and the sinners. That's what we're here for. But do you care what the unsaved people think? Ever. One time. Ever. One time. Does it stop you ever? Because it should. The physical reality is the result of the spiritual reality. And the physical creation with its universal laws, its ubiquity of law, is merely God's way to reveal Himself to us and to teach us and to develop our spiritual mind and our essence, our, our living soul. The, the, the true reality is the spiritual reality. And you must know this. You must know it in order to worship in spirit. To love the creation, to be addicted to the physical, is to have no wisdom at all. To scream and demand a physical sign, a physical wonder, is the opposite of wisdom. I hope you got that. It will have no effect on your mind, by the way. One who demands such from the spiritual God is buried in wickedness. If you're standing around trying to get God to be your organ grinder monkey, you are a mess. God does not contribute to to our stupidity. Don't expect Him to. Oh, God is going to get so tired of me being an idiot, He's finally going to throw me a bone. That's your view? God will, will wait forever for you to be an idiot. Ask instead. Don't ask for silly things. Ask instead for what? Wisdom. Because when you have wisdom, you have the outward manifestation of the inward reality and you become a witness. And a witness that is a watchman that is wise, uh, that's a powerful person with a God-honoring life and peace, and humility. Pursue the path that is spiritual. Commit to searching and finding the hidden things of God. How long will we love the simple? I've asked that many times. I'm going to say it differently tonight. How long will we love the physical? When will we worship in spirit and in, in, tr- in the truth that is Christ Jesus, by the way, in case you needed to know about what the truth was there. And, and that's your choices, really. Signs and wonders are belief and faith. That's your choice. You can have one. If you're searching for signs and wonders, you're in uh, a whole lot of trouble scripturally. We will love that which is physical or will we love that which is spiritual? Will we love that which is, can be instantly gone because the physical reality can vanish, right? But not the immortal, the spiritual reality. And here's where I was going to reread Romans 19 through, 319 through 26. I'm going to do it. I know I went too long. It's okay. You endured because you're the most holy of all. Maybe none of that's true. But here we have, reread Romans 3, 19 through 26. This time I want you to read it knowing that it is about the physical and the spiritual. Now, we know that whatever the law says, what does the law govern? The ubiquity of law, what does it govern? What does gravity govern? What is motion It says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be saved or justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God, what's that? Is that physical? 
apart from the law, notice it's apart from the law, is revealed. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith. Belief and define faith, define belief in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace. What's grace? What is it? Define it. Is it physical? It's non-physical. It's a spiritual concept, isn't it? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a satisfaction, if you will, propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because of His forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Okay, next week we will figure out what that really says. Let's uh, stand and be dismissed.